for our New Testament scripture reading this afternoon from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is a, uh, as it were, a Holy Spirit-inspired paraphrase of the Lord's teaching from the Sermon on the Mount that we will consider uh, in a moment. Uh, that very well-known passage from Matthew 5, declaring that the church is a city on a hill, uh, the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And here Peter tells us uh, in many ways that we are to live a distinct salt-like, light-like life in this world. We have been separated by God, consecrated by Him to live for Him. First Peter chapter 2 first 12 verses. This is the word of the Lord. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect Precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And the stone of stumbling, and the rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain, your fleshly, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. Amen. Once more in God's word to... The Gospel account of Matthew, chapter 5, and we find there our reading in verses 13 through 16. Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. We want to consider um, the theme of the church as salt and light, thinking about the corporate nature of evangelism. Uh, Not only is evangelism to be done by individuals, but is to be done by the church uh, collectively, together, 
There is, as it were, a corporate witness that the church has. And so uh, what I say here uh, this evening from God's Word, of course, has great application to the personal sphere, but I trust that you'll see as we work through the text uh, near the end of our time, the application for us as a church, as a people. This is the word of the Lord, Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on an hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Amen. Let us pray for God's blessing one more time. Heavenly Father, we come to your word and we ask that you would speak, for we are listening, for we want to be hearing, we want to be listening. So grant us to that end as well, a hearing heart, a listening mind, an attentive spirit, and a disposition that receives, Father, your word as our very life. And Father, more than just mere understanding, would you grant us obedience and a love for the Savior who has commissioned us in this way to do the work of Christ in this lost and dark and tasteless world. Father, would you continue to bless us as we think through uh, the various implications of what it means to be salt and light. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a few points. I don't know if they were printed here. Um, Oh, they are printed here. Yes, I see them. Um, We want to consider, first of all, what salt is, what light is in the second instance. And then the third point I've changed a little bit from Israel to the church to the world. I just want to call that imitation. We want to see how God calls us to a life of imitation. Imitating Israel, imitating the Father and the Son, and then imitating the faithful church throughout history. And then finally, fourthly, some clarifications to be given at the end. So first of all, we want to consider what it means to be salt. Jesus declares that you are the salt of the earth. I should note here, perhaps you do know already, that the yous, the second persons, are all in the plural. You all are the salt of the earth. You all are the light of the world. And that is also true in our New Testament reading from 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a people. You are a generation, a race, a chosen race, and so on and so forth, a priesthood. We'll get to that in a moment. But what it means to be salt, a number of commentators have over the years 
spilled a lot of ink uh, thinking through what this means. What, 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 why is Jesus using this symbol of salt? Is it something regarding life, that it is needed for life? Is it perhaps that uh, salt is a seasoning agent for taste? Is it the preserving nature of salt that Jesus has in mind? Is it that salt has to be mixed into the food in order to have its full effectiveness? Uh, It's quite clear, though, on a plain reading of Scripture, what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus is saying, uh, simply put, that for salt to be effective in whatever task it's to be used, it must be salt. It must be distinctly salt. It must be not halfway salt, not mostly salt, but salt. And how do we know that it's salt? Because it hasn't lost its taste. The church, in other words, is salt. In other words, it is distinct and to be distinct from the world. It is incomprehensible, this saying of Christ that we are the salt of the earth, if we don't understand this contrast here in the first instance. There is an antithesis between the church and the world. There is a distinction between earth and salt, and later on in our text, between world and light. And in order to call the world back to Christ, you see, the church cannot be like the world. It must be distinct from the world. Our worship services, for instance, must be distinct from the sorts of things that we see in the world. It's interesting to think about what a worship service is. Because there's nothing like it in the world. Worship service that's regulated by the Word of God. It's not, it's not a music concert. The church is not a nonprofit. It, it may have nonprofit status, but it's not a typical nonprofit. It's certainly not a political lobby organization. It's not an earthly thing. It, it may look like other things, but it is completely an otherworldly entity. The church is, in many respects, heaven on earth, where God's name is hallowed, where God's will is done. We see, as it were, the first instantiations of the kingdom of God. The church is a distinct kingdom, a salty kingdom, serving the one true living God. It has a distinct life, a distinct law, a distinct destiny, a distinct motive for doing all that God calls us to do. Whatever it is that you do, you are to do it for the glory of God. And that is in complete antithesis to the world. The church, furthermore, has been commissioned and equipped by the one true living God to do His work, to proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ is the true King who has come back into His rightful possession, into this world. And He offers pardon, full and free, to sinners, treasonous sinners such as you and I rebels who have plotted against him. And we are to go forth into the world proclaiming this forgiveness, this grace of God to all those who turn to him in repentance and in worship. And in this simple, ordinary, God-ordained way, 
God is pleased to gather in the nations back to Christ so that the nations would learn to live as subjects of the great king. And this is the church's unique work, its distinct work that only the church can do. The church alone can do this work. In order to win the world to Christ, you see, what God is telling us is that we must be salt, we must be distinct. We, there must be something different about you about the church. We must have something to offer the world that the world doesn't have. We cannot offer the world something that is in the world. We must offer the world the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in this way that the church must maintain her distinct character. But what happens when she doesn't? God tells us, right? You are the salt of the earth, verse 13. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. If the church loses what makes her distinct, her message, her life, her Lord, her worship, she may have gained the world, but she has lost her soul because she has lost her life in Christ. The church becomes... Something like uh, you know the latest state-of-the-art refrigerator. You ever see one of those refrigerators in Home Depot or some other place, some appliance store? It's got all bells and whistles, right? Yet a refrigerator that doesn't work is nothing more than a hundred-pound piece of bulky garbage, plastic garbage. And that's what happens when the church loses her saltiness, when she loses what makes her distinct, her reason for existence. What what is the church good for at that point? She is no longer good for anything, Jesus says, except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. She's worthless because she has become like the rest of the world, lifeless, godless, Christless, because the church has thrown away the very thing that has made her distinct. And isn't that the temptation, one of the temptations of many in our day, to, to, to soften the sharp edges of God's word, right? To, to downplay the radicality of the kingdom of Christ, to dismiss how alien the church is to be in this world. And some of you have mentioned that over the course of the last few days, the temptation, right? To, to go along, to get along, right? You don't want to make waves, you don't want to rock the boat at work or at school, in your community, right? But it's dead fish, right? It's dead fish. As someone once said, you know, it's dead fish that swim, swim downstream. It's the, the living salmon that go upstream. No, beloved, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. We are in the world, but we will never, we must never be of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are to be distinct first and foremost. But Jesus continues, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. If salt means that the church is to be distinct from the world, then light here, what Jesus is meaning by this use of this symbol, 
Light means that the church's good works must be universally visible to the world. We must not be so distinct that the world cannot see us, hidden away somewhere, right? We must be in the world, sure, not of the world, right? Distinct from the world, but we must be in the world. The church's luminous light is to be found everywhere, not hidden in the valley, but raised up, as Jesus says, as a city on a hill, seen by all. Um, For those who were at the conference, I mentioned Isaiah chapter 2. And Isaiah chapter 2 tells us, the first few verses of that chapter, of the great vision of the last days. And it's one of the many visions that the prophets of God have been given uh, regarding what will happen on the last day. But look at what Isaiah says there. Uh, Verse 2, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills. And so visible is Zion, so visible is this mountain of the Lord, which represents the kingdom of God, which we would say is is the church, the, the, the church is the beachhead of the kingdom that the nation shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, verse 3, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not... Lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The vision here is of a universal reconciliation, a restoration of all things. Man has been restored back to his creator, and as a result, man has been restored and reconciled back to his fellow man. And there is a great, a great yearning and desire to go to the house of God to meet there with God Himself. God is in Zion. That's what makes Zion distinct. And it's all, verse 5, as a result of the house of Jacob walking in the light of the Lord. The church is the mountain of God where God's worship is found, where Jesus reigns and governs, where His will is done. And it is here that the nations seek to go to And and this is what God tells us that the church is. She is to be the light of the world, so raised on high, so visible, that her light is seen and spread to the farthest ends. It's like Jesus says, it's like a light that's lit in a house and gives light to all in the house. There's no corner where its light is not seen. And yet, what is this light? Well, we're told in verse 16. What is this light? In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What is our light is our life of good works. That is here in this context what it is. It's not just verbal witness, which is 
important. If you have nothing else, you have that. But here in this context, it's a life of good works, the consequence of God's grace bringing you into His kingdom. We must never forget the verbal witness of gospel-centered proclamation. But here in this text, what we see is that there is a non-verbal witness of gospel-centered piety. This is, of course, what the Heidelberg Catechism says in question and answer 86, which I referenced during the conference. Question and answer 86 of the Catechism. reading from the back of the Psalter here. Since then we are delivered from our misery merely of grace through Christ without any merit of ours. Why must we still do good works? A number of reasons are given. The Heidelberger answers, because Christ, having redeemed and delivered us by His blood, also renews us by His Holy Spirit after His own image, that we may testify by the whole of our conduct, our gratitude to God for His blessings, and that he may be praised by us also, that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof. And notice the last reason here, and that by our godly conversation, that is an older word meaning conduct, so that by our godly conversation, others may be gained to Christ. We cannot but help do good works and do good to our neighbors because we have been changed by Christ to live in union with Christ who is Himself the embodiment of good. And we do so for the glory of God. We do so to be assured of our salvation. And we do so, as the Heidelberg says, as God says here in Matthew 5, so that by our godly living our neighbors may be one to Christ Beloved, not only are we to not be of the world, but rather we are also to be in the world. Distinct from the world, but visible in the world. And here we get to our third point. We are being called by God, you see, to a life of imitation. In, uh, in the conference, my first talk, if, if you missed some of it or having trouble tracking with all of that. It's simple. As God's people, we are called to a creational imitation of the divine act of salvation. That's, that's what we're called to. A creation, or a creaturely rather, imitation of the divine act of salvation. God is a seeking and saving Savior, and God calls His people to do Likewise, of course, we don't save, we don't atone, we don't propitiate for people's sins. But there is a creaturely analog that is given to us in God's Word as the church. And so, what is this life of imitation? There are three aspects to this life of imitation that I want to draw your attention to uh, this afternoon, this evening. First of all, God here in this text is calling His church to continue to be what Israel was called to be in the Old Testament. What is it that God desired for Israel of old? Well, to live, as it were, as a restored Garden of Eden, in gratitude to God and in the goodness of God, obeying the law of God, 
to live in such a way that the world would see Israel, right, and go and worship God, right? There wasn't, in, in, in the Old Testament, there wasn't a great commission as we have it in the words of Matthew 28. Israel wasn't supposed to go out, but she was to live in such an attractive and attractional way that she would bring the nations in, as we saw in Isaiah 2. They would want to say, we, we want to be taught by God because, oh, Jacob, house of Jacob, you have lived in the light of the Lord. And we see that there's something different about you. You can turn also to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 8. Very similar vision that God gives his prophet. Zechariah 8 verse 20 through 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples yet shall come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Notice what the Lord says. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. What a marvelous vision that God gives His prophet, that God gives His people, that God gives us. Right? And and how would the ten men of the nations know that God is with them, that God is with the Jewish people because the Jewish people are living and loving Yahweh and obeying God and living in the way of His commandments through Israel's good works, in other words, as she obeys God's law. We know how the story goes in the Old Testament, though. Israel renounced that blessing as God's distinct people. Israel was called to be a catalyst for the world to glorify God. And yet, what happens to Israel? Paul tells us in Romans 2, quoting Isaiah 52, as it is written, the name of of God is not glorified, is not exalted on high on account of your life, but rather the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And yet, God does not nullify that commission of his people, but rather reasserts it here in Matthew 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, God, you see, is giving those who are citizens of the kingdom of God, the church of Jesus Christ, the same call that he gave to Israel of old. He's given it now to you, his church. That's why if you continue to read on in Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I've come to fulfill the righteousness of the law so that in me you would have true life and know the blessing of God to be set apart by God in this world, to bring this world back to God and to do so in part as you go forth and proclaim with your lips and proclaim with your life the good news of Jesus Christ through good works. 
And what are these good works? Well, you just simply need to continue reading the Sermon on the Mount. We don't have time to do that here tonight. But what are the good works that we are called to do? Well, to uphold the law of the Lord. To have a reconciling disposition to others. To to live with such radical purity of heart and conduct. To protect the indestructible bond of marriage and lifelong fidelity. To not take the name of the Lord in vain. To forego retaliation. To love our enemies and not seek revenge. To give to the needy. To trust the Lord with all of our material needs. To not be anxious. As he says in the end of Matthew 6. And the Sermon on the Mount goes on from there. See what God is calling us in this first line of imitation. Is to imitate what Israel failed to do. To imitate. To take up the mantle of Israel's commission, but now to do it as the church that's been empowered by the Holy Spirit who has been poured upon us on the day of Pentecost and to do the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to do. That's the first line of imitation. The second aspect of this imitation, this life of imitation, is that the church, you see, is called by God to imitate God Himself. Not just to imitate Israel of old, but to imitate God our Father and Christ our Savior in doing good. The Belgian Confession, Article 1, declares that God is good and the overflowing fountain of all good, and God does good in all creation to all, to the unjust and the just, to the righteous and unrighteous. The Word of God declares that He sends His rain and sunshine upon all. In many ways, if I could use the word, indiscriminately. Not only is our Father good, but in imitation of His Father, Jesus, God's only Son, the second person of the eternal Trinity, our Savior, does what His Father does. My Father works and then I work, Jesus says. The works that I do have been given to me to do by my Father. In fact, such is the, 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 the imitation of Jesus, of His Father. Nothing that He does comes from Himself. The words that I speak, I have been given these words by my Father. The, 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 the works that I do, the character that I have, it's all given to me by my Father. Jesus, in imitation of His Father, does good. Peter to Cornelius relates this interesting description of Jesus. He says in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he says, He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He went about doing what was good, because he is good. He healed the sick, he raised the dead, he freed demoniacs, he cleansed lepers, he proclaimed in this way the kingdom of God, not just with words, but with deeds. His deeds manifested the arrival of the kingdom. That it was a kingdom of life, of power, of forgiveness of sins, of reconciliation back to a holy God, of the restoration of all things, of the triumph of goodness. Our Father is good, our Savior is good, And the church in obedience to her Lord is to go and do likewise. To do good to all men, Galatians 6 says. Of course, first and foremost, to the household of God. 
Christ revealed the Father to us, and as the body of Christ, you are called to do the same. I turn your attention once more back to our text. Let your light shine, right? Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and as a result, do what? And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The glory is not ours. We don't do good works so that we could exalt ourselves or exalt, you know, Heritage Reformed Congregation in Kinelon. Oh, that's a great church. It's a, it's a wonderful church. And yes, you are a great and wonderful church. But that's not the point of our good works. Our good works are done in order to bring the world to glorify God, to show the world your Father in heaven by your conduct, by your love, by your good works. When the church loves God and loves neighbor, the world will see the church as the highest of all the mountains. That the church is that which is more glorious. It's better than anything here on earth. It's, it's heaven on earth. The church is the new Jerusalem wherein God's righteousness dwells. The church is the temple of God, ever fruitful and abounding, full of vitality, full of life. The kind of place you'd want to be a part of, you'd want to live in. And why would the church, why would the world, excuse me, want to be a part of heritage here in Kinelon? Because you are salt and you are light, because God is in your midst. God who infuses all things. God is what makes the church the church. God is here in our midst. The church is to imitate Israel in what she failed to do. The church is called to imitate our Father in heaven and our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But thirdly, before moving on to some clarifications... The church is called to imitate. God calls the church today to imitate the work to which God has called the church in times past. We are called to a life of imitation, that we would be faithful to God as previous generations have been faithful to God. We are the the latest in the line, a long line, a long ancestral line of those who have gone before us, who have been faithful to God, who have sought to do the will of God in, in ordinary, simple ways. And yet, those, those works of generations past look so big to us. We are called to do likewise. The challenge before us is to not simply love our neighbor on a personal level, as I mentioned before. No, God says, you are, you all are to be this and to do this, and this is something, to be the salt of the earth and light of the world, not something we can do on our own, but only as the church. The task is great. The task is worldwide. Now, we might not be called to go to Papua New Guinea or to Australia or to Sub-Saharan Africa, but we are called to be together here, here in North Jersey, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. This corporate language, Peter picks up 
as he paraphrases his Lord, as we read in our New Testament reading, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, I remind you, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you all may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, quoting Hosea. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It is not an opinion. It is a historical fact. And more attention needs to be paid to this. That, these, that this world was changed when the Christian church sought to apply the cultural implications of what it meant to love our neighbor. And for this, we need to think broadly and biblically and historically. The love of God built His church and made His new creation. And the love of God in His church, as the church loves her neighbors, builds Christian culture. It builds civilization. In antiquity, there was nothing like the Christian church. There was nothing like Christian love. There was nothing like the works of charity of the church. The Roman Empire, in which Jesus was born and lived and died and was raised from the dead, in which Peter writes as well about 30 years after the resurrection of our Lord. The Roman Empire uh, had much prosperity, but it was enjoyed by a few, to quote Thomas Hobbes. Life for much of the Roman Empire was nasty, brutish, and short. Mothers and fathers abandoned their newborn on the side of the road. Travelers were routinely assaulted in foreign lands. Orphans and widows were exploited by the powerful. Prisoners were left to rot in prison. Marriages were expected to be open to infidelity. And what happens in this dark, dark world, this dead world, Christ appears and the Christian church appears in faithfulness to Christ as the light of the world shining in a dark world, bringing a true revolution of life in Rome. Tertullian, one of the ancient fathers, states, he records what pagans remarked about the church. He says, see how these Christians love one another. Indeed, not only did Christians love one another, they loved the world. Why? Because God had loved the world. And so the fruitful Christian church preached and taught the gospel everywhere. Everywhere it went. Starting in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then to the ends of the world. The fruitful Christian church preached and taught the gospel to barbaric tribes in Europe, the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, the Vandals, the Celts, the Picts, the Angles. And it taught everywhere it went. Thomas is said to have died in India, James in Spain, Andrew in Scotland. And it taught and discipled and civilized these barbaric tribes. Why? Because the Christian church in faithfulness to God, loved the world. And the church, in faithfulness to God, built hospitals for the sick and the dying, orphanages for abandoned children, schools to promote biblical literacy, 
and book depositories and universities in order to store and to teach what Scripture said. And they built cemeteries where the dead would be buried with dignity. And the church cared for the widow and the involuntary poor, was hospitable to strangers and aliens, and worked for monogamy in marriage and civility in society. The concept, the very concept of charity that we know of today, right? We think of charity as a contribution to a nonprofit in order to get a tax deduction. Charity is a Christian concept that was brought into this world by Christ and the church and faithfulness to Christ. And the church extended charity to meet the material needs of the destitute because the church understood that God had met our most pressing need in Christ. Not only did it bring good works, it brought the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only a nonverbal witness, but a verbal witness, word and deed always together. Just think about William Wilberforce, right, in England, who helped and worked tirelessly to abolish the slave trade. Every society had slaves. It was common in all societies for millennia. But it was only those societies pervaded by the Christian faith that sought an end to slavery. In Scotland, in the early 1800s, we have Thomas Chalmers, known, of course, for his parish ministry. I think this particular congregation has a a very good love for the work of Thomas Chalmers. I think you're familiar with it. But it's also the case that Thomas Chalmers led a resurgence. His ministry, his gospel ministry, led to a resurgence of mercy ministry in all of Scotland. Here in the northeast of the United States in the late 1700s and in all of the 1800s, Reformed and Presbyterian churches were known. They were marked by compassion for the spiritual lost, for the physical needy as urbanization and sprawl took over and industrialization, urban centers. Uh, There was something called the Broadway Presbyterians in New York City who both preached the gospel and extended the light of Christ through good works grounded in biblical fidelity to Christ. Think of the church today. There is much talk of loving our neighbor, right? COVID, COVID helped us see that even that can be distorted by the world. And there is much talk of compassion, but, but let's be real, let's be honest. Who, who is to know true compassion? Does the world know love? Does the world know compassion? Or do you know compassion? Because you know the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is to be on the front lines of true compassion but the church? Ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are lost, who are struggling perhaps with addictions. The church through her members running rescue missions and crisis pregnancy centers and adoption agencies. Ministering the truth of Christ to those in prison. Doing relief work after natural disasters. Reconnecting runaways with their families. Putting the lazy to work. This is the call of the church. And we, in imitation of God our Father and Jesus Christ our Savior, following the dictates of both Old and New Testament, must do the work that the faithful church has done 
and times past. Beloved, you have no choice in the matter. Without Christian good works, there is no culture. There is no society. There is no sanity. There is no civilization to speak of. Without the faithful Christian church being salt and light, the lights will go out in this world. And what we'll begin to see, even as we do so in our day, is the darkness of a new barbarism, a new irrationality, a new neo-paganism. Sin is parasitic and decadent, a destructive, counterfeiting force that undoes and degenerates all that it inhabits. It cannot possibly build. It does not know how to build because it refuses by its very nature to live in the light and love of Christ. But the love of the Father, you see, that is shed abroad in the church, that love of the Father marries, procreates, builds homes and communities, loves neighbors, does good, and creates culture, Christian culture. A few clarifications then as we conclude our time in God's Word this evening. Three. Three clarifications. The first is what has been mentioned already thus far. That you must always give a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus Christ. We must never simply do good works devoid of the gospel of truth. Our nonverbal gospel-centered witness of true piety must always be married with the verbal witness of the gospel. We must always understand that the motivation of our good works is the glory of God, that God's worship may be found in the world. That's what we want to see. We want to see the kingdom of God grow, that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So keep together the verbal witness of the gospel and the nonverbal witness of gospel piety. Always give a cup of cold water in the name of Christ. But second clarification, <clears throat> good works and our Christian conduct occur in a context of persecution. All we need to do is just look up in the text prior to our text this evening in Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12. This is what Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Not only do we seek to walk faithfully before God, imitating God our Father, imitating Jesus our Savior, imitating the faithful church in times gone past, we also walk faithfully in terms of persecution. As they were reviled and persecuted and slandered, as they were treated, so will we be treated. We may endure such persecution. 1 Peter 2.12, which we read for our New Testament reading, tells us, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Sometimes our good works are used by God to bring in the nations, but sometimes our good works are the catalyst for persecuting the church, for your persecution, your suffering. You will oftentimes, in this fallen world, be vilified. Slandered, And yet for this reason, the church may not shrink back from her mission and her calling to be salt of the earth and light of the world. The church must carry on. 
continue to advance, continue to seek the good of her neighbors, in spite of and no matter what the world may say or do to the church. They did it to Jesus. If they did it to the prophets, we should not expect less. But then thirdly and finally, a word of encouragement. Do not underestimate how Christ uses your life of good works, your nonverbal witness to win others to Christ. Our good works speak of Christ. And as we read now in Matthew 5, they testify of our Father in heaven. You are united to Christ. You are united to the bread of from heaven. You are united to true food and true drink. And so your life is not, and your life may not be like that broken refrigerator with rotting food. That's the world, but that's not you. Your life in Christ, you see, is a feast unto the world that is hungry and destitute. Your life in Christ is a stately home in a homeless world. Your life in Christ is a fruit-bearing life in a fruitless world. And so remember God's calling for you, the church. Not just for you as individual Christians, but for you together as a church to be salt, to be distinct from the world, but to be the light of the world, reflecting the light of Christ who truly is the light of the world, and thus to shine the goodness of Christ in this world, and thus to continue to gather the world back to her true Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this commissioning that you so often repeat in your word, that Father, our calling is to the nations, not a calling to be left in Jerusalem, to remain here, but to go forth, to go forth, always remembering that we are in this world, but not of this world. And we thank you, Father, for the blessing that is, as it were, baked into this commissioning, that you are with us, that we don't go in our name, we don't go as the ultimate light of the world, but we go reflecting Jesus Christ, united to Him, united to His strength, to His Spirit, to His vitality, always in His promise that He will build His church. So Father, grant us, Father, grant us to be a little bit more courageous than fearful, to be a little bit more solicitous than lazy, And Father, more obedient than we have been disobedient, more faithful than we've been faithless in times past. And that, Father, you would continue to build even your church here in Kinelon. Father, they would testify of your goodness to them as you continue to add to their number, Father, those whom you've appointed unto salvation. That, Father, they would see, and that we would see in Jersey City and all that, All faithful churches all throughout North Jersey would see, Father, in our generation, adult converts, baptisms of adults who have come from darkness to light because of Jesus Christ. That, Father, we would join with them to glorify you, our God and our Father in heaven. Bring this about, we pray. We ask all of this now in Jesus' name.
Amen.